Hi, I'm Ali Hassan, host of CBC's Laugh Out Loud. Do you like to laugh? Because we're serving up big laughs each week. We feature comedians from across Canada. You might already be fans of some of them, and others might be new discoveries. We record emerging comedians and established pros in front of live audiences all across the country, and we promise that you'll be literally laughing out loud. You can find Laugh Out Loud on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The comedian and actor Maria Bamford is well known for taking things like OCD and suicidal ideation and mental illness. And instead of like shying away from them, she starts talking about them at the heart of her comedy. So Maria has just released a memoir. As you might guess, it's honest about everything, about her own experience with mental illness, about the way she sees 12-step programs, and why she's always tried to be open. Maria Bamford, that's coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. So um, the term dark comedy gets uh, bandied around a lot. <laughs> I feel like only terms get bandied. Anyway, dark comedy, more often than not, means jokes about stuff that a lot of people don't feel comfortable talking about. And sometimes that stuff that we don't feel comfortable talking about is something that we should talk a lot more about, which is struggling with your mental health. The comedian Maria Bamford has been talking about her own journey with mental illness for years. I mean, just listen. I went into a psychiatric facility, which if you haven't been, uh, don't feel bad if you go. And uh, they are, they're uniformly awful. Uh, you're not at the wrong one. Uh, they're all bad. They're all bad. Uh, it's as if an art director came in and said, okay, I want to break five more chairs. And then we need uh, at least three pieces taken out of every puzzle. And... The big screen TV, let's play it, have it playing ultimate fighting championships at maximum volume. Lose the remote. That's from Maria Bamford's 2017 Netflix special, Old Baby. And that's just what you can expect from Maria's stand-up. She talks about her experience with OCD and depression and anxiety. And it's never sad. It never makes you feel bad. It makes you feel better if you, like me, have ever gone through something like that. That same vulnerability and jokes is front and center in Maria's brand new memoir. It's called Sure, I'll Join Your Cult, A Memoir of Mental Illness and the Quest to Belong Anywhere. It is a brutally honest memoir about show business, mental health, and the comfort of having a rigid belief systems. Her memoir is out today. I'm so happy to say uh, Maria joined me to talk about it. But listen, I obviously have to give a disclaimer here. Heads up, we do talk about um, things like suicide um, and eating disorders and you know various things that would require a 12-step program. All right, here's my conversation with Maria Bamford. Hi, nice to see you. Thank you so much for having me. Yay. I, I'm sorry to start the interview by playing one of your old jokes back to you. No, that's I'm I'm honored. I I can't remember that one for for the life of me. So, uh and that was more of a a story. It is true. I always like people to, to know cuz there's a lot of memes out there that are can make you feel like oh, I've gone to the wrong place, you know, cuz this mental health memes are always like, "Hey, ask for help. Tell someone." <laughs> and then when it the, the care is less than stellar, you think, "Oh, I must be it must be me <laughs> and it's not you because you're feeling bad already. Um, I once had, I, I went to a, a better, better help therapist 
And she kept confusing me with other clients. <laughs> Christine, of course you're stressed. You just had a baby. And not that that isn't therapeutic. I mean, in, in many ways, it made me not think about myself for a second and uh, how grateful I am that I don't have a baby. Um, yeah. I like the, I mean, that's, that's in the book. I like the chapter where you talk about, I mean, it's quite a, you know, you, you talk about, you know, going into a mental health facility and like the vision that's sold to you and like the vision that's still on the internet, right? I can remember the name of it. And it's like, there's going to, can you tell the story? Los Encinas, uh, Pasadena, California. Would you please make some changes to your website for God's sakes? Um, I believe it's been 15 years now, but they say they'll have like this, this list of like, we do yoga, you know, there's mindfulness. Okay. Here's what's happening. There's a ton of tater tots. Okay. (laughs) That's, that's on the menu. Okay. And then uh, there's a smoke bucket outside. (laughs) Uh, everything's closed, shut down. When you ask about it, I was like, hey, you had this whole, you know, like this, uh, yeah, this cruise ship thing of, of and, and of course, the overworked staff was just like, yeah, no, we don't have any of that. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I just, I, one of my favorite groups, which we do these check-in groups uh, in this one site facility, and the guy would just go, he would read some Buddhist literature, which is not the best when you're in a psychiatric emergency. Life is suffering. Let's go around and uh, all check in where we're at. Uh, there's a television inside my chest. Like, you know, like, what? I, I don't, I'm not sure what the answer is because it is understaffed and... Also, we did it like a music group where at the time I was just had so much manic energy that I, I didn't feel like I could sit in a chair and I wanted to be at the music group. But I said, can I crouch in a corner, you know, just, you know, as you do. And <laughs> they said, no, oh, no, <laughs> they said I had to leave the room. Uh, and I'm like, come on now. Uh, you can't be like regulating people. <laughs> like I, I was joining in. I just was. I had to crouch in the corner, but that was that was uh, that was not group etiquette. So, Uh, congratulations on the book, by the way. I really I really loved reading it because I I think about it like I've seen you do stand up in in person. I've I've watched your specials and 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 all that stuff. And you know, as I mentioned in the introduction, there's no shortage of like when when I would watch you, you're very open, you're very honest about any sort of um, uh, experiences you've had uh, in, in in mental health. How was the experience? Was it different writing the book? Yes, because there's no laughs, nobody thing. Um, There's not that uh, delightful oxytocin of hearing other human beings and then uh, being on stage. There is a deli down the street from our house. It's called the Copper Keg Liquor Store. It is hot, dusty, dark, Diet Coke, off milk, sour. You... Touch a Milky Way, it explodes. <laughs> they are invariably unfriendly, and they are only sometimes open. And it is that kind of integrity of mediocrity over time that deserves celebration. The energy that it takes to not improve! You know, so 
I tried to get that through giggling to myself. And it was it was also the excitement of trying a new a new uh, art form. Uh, but I definitely had to read it out loud to people to to feel more connected to the fun fun of it. Um, it, it was it was I mean, I think everybody says this about everything, maybe everything, not just writing books. Uh, I, it was harder than I thought it was. Be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's a more accurate Buddhist, uh, that's a more accurate Buddhist exactly. adage to drop off, drop, drop off. Exactly. How about like the, how about like the level of vulnerability? Like there, it takes a certain, uh, uh, honesty to stand on stage in a, in a comedy club and be honest about what you're going through. Is, is, is that in, in book form different? Well, well, the great thing about books is, yeah, you don't see the look on people's faces. Um, that is so wonderful. You don't see people walking out or closing the book <laughs> as you reveal something. So that's that's really a, a boon of 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 writing things down on paper. Yeah, that that part was wonderful. Like, felt very safe. Like, oh my gosh, I can say say whatever I want and, and of course the editors um, I come in and say I, <laughs> I had a few things that the editors put the kibosh on I have a compulsive need to share everything uh, so I wanted to put in all my bookkeeping um, throughout the book like lots of QuickBook files and they're like yeah no that's not writing it's like <laughs> oh but it is cutting and pasting. Um, so, <laughs> I, I love the way at the beginning you say, if your family was a cult, your mom would have been a cult leader. And I loved reading about your family. I was wondering if you might talk about your mom a little bit. Oh, my mom. Well, she passed, uh, I believe it's three, four years ago now. And she... I realize now she would say something was the best. And it was almost in this religious fashion of like, this is the best cup of coffee that I, I mean, look at this. There's a foam on top. And then in this glass, it's just perfect. I mean, you think about the miles that this has traveled, probably from Ethiopia or El Salvador. And I realized that my mom just chose to see everything that she received as the best. So I, I thought, oh, she was getting, the, you know, like she somehow had an inner knowledge that she knew what was good and what was bad. And, and she would do this with people too. You know, she would just say, Tom, I met this guy, Tom, and he works for the CBC. He is just darling. And he is the best at this interview show, but it's just wonderful. And I would love I didn't get his details because I didn't want to be intrusive, but like she would really put the shine on, on everything and everyone, and, you know, including us kids, you know, my, my daughters are the most intelligent, beautiful girls in the whole world. Although I wish Maria would comb her here. <laughs> did you, did you start impersonating her early? Yes, of course. In a passive aggressive way to, uh, <laughs> There's nothing worse than someone doing an impersonation back to you of you. Uh, it's really monstrous. Um, so I did that as a kid. And then I and then I also did some other voice, you know, just to because my own voice, people said I sounded like a baby or that it was irritating. Um, 
so I'd mock commercial voices. The the voice that I, I always, it's a go-to voice. You just lower and say anything, really. Uh, things that seem uh, to make sense. Like, I put all my money in body, bottles and cans. Uh, because that is, that's things that are solid that are going to, they're going to last. And then the new American dream is to tent. Uh, there are no rental properties that anyone can afford. So the important thing is to just get a tarp, two boxes. <laughs> I don't like how reasonable everything you're saying sounds in that voice. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't like how I'm like, yeah, maybe bottles of cans is the way to go. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's just the tone of voice that you're doing. It makes me, it makes me want to believe it. Um, Stand up wise. I noticed in the book you talk about um, how at your family dinner table, your your dad would set a timer when you were a kid so you could talk for a, a few minutes. I mean, that, feel, yeah. that feels like early stand-up. It really was. I mean, I didn't – until later, I, I had trouble getting stories in. Um, my mom was very gregarious. My sister – hilarious and um they're very they had a lot of hot takes still do or you know or my sister still does so I, I my dad would set a timer and I think it was like three minutes it wasn't it was a very open mic type slot um he didn't give me a lot yeah. of time I mean <laughs> I certainly wasn't middling and <laughs> he'd flash a light if you were starting to go on a bit long <laughs> But I tried to get as many juicy stories. Like I remember, yeah, just like saving up my stuff. Like, okay, um, there's this bog um, that they're fully uh, dead bodies, but they're completely preserved in in Holland. And then, like, I would <laughs> just try to get these really hot stories uh, that I just gotten out of my fifth grade science teacher, uh, Miss Labadee. And uh, but uh, I, I tried to pull focus, but usually uh, it, it. Yeah, I could only keep it for three minutes. I mean, that's a, isn't that a beautiful thing that like you were sort of just given a couple of minutes of the day, especially when you're a kid, you can kind of feel talked over. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Oh, God. No, I was so grateful. And and my dad was a good he he was always interested in, in what I had to say. I mean, we were kind of best pals. Um, he was pretty depressive. Uh <laughs> My dad, one of his favorite um, stories of hope is the myth of Sisyphus. What? Um, like pushing the boulder up the hill and that it's unending? Yeah. 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 And just like, yeah, that's, it, that's, that's what it is, right? <laughs> I mean, God damn it. And I, I like to think now that I am that boulder um, in the story. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was pushing you up the hill. <laughs> Just, just unendingly pushing you up the hill. <laughs> there, there, there's another great moment in the beginning of the book. Um, well, actually, maybe, you know, maybe great moment is the is the way to put it, but it, sort of a, a moment that I, I I was I was touched by, which is when you go to your mom about some intrusive thoughts that you've been having. I mean, you 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 talk about being this kid, terrified of telling your mom about these in, intrusive thoughts that that you've been having. Can you can you tell me a little bit about that? So around nine or 10, I stopped being able to sleep at night. I'm not sure if it was a combination of I have bipolar too, but I also, um, you know, was starting to go on diets at the time. So I think maybe there's some weird malnutrition part with it, but for whatever reason, um, 
I started staying up all night worrying that I was going to harm my family. Um, and that's intrusive thoughts are usually things that are taboo uh, in your culture. So whatever it is that would be the worst possible thing, that's what you're going to worry about. Um, so I was very worried that I was going to kill my family. And uh, yeah, so I would just stay up all night tr- sitting on my hands, trying to make sure that I, I just didn't move. And um, finally, I, t- I told my mom about it. And she, <laughs> she said, which shows what was taboo for her, honey, it's okay if you're gay. <laughs> which... <laughs> Then brought in a whole new slew of uh, of fears and thoughts, but um, then they then they sent me to a Christian therapist who really added to the repertoire of concerns. And uh, yeah, but they did their best. And, and yeah, my parents were always very pro therapy. And um, yeah, what what I find interesting about that is that you, you talk about how scared you were to talk to your mom about these intrusive thoughts that you were having. I mean, I mean, and rightfully so. It's a it's a scary thing to do, and then like as part of your stand up, we were joking about it earlier, but you really are getting up in front of people and have been for a really long time, like getting up and talking about sort of the deepest, darkest secrets and and sort of thoughts that that go through your mind. Like, how, is there a connection there? Like, how how did that happen? My mom was a very, I mean, she was on Depakota and I think she had some bipolar elements, but she was very ebullient. Is that the right pronunciation? Yeah. Um, I hope so. Yeah. Um, person, like she was just very even keel and kind of normal. Yeah. She just always, that's why I was scared to tell her. Like she, like had I told my dad, although my dad wouldn't have had the uh, bandwidth to handle it. My dad would have been like, Oh my God. Like <laughs> Sisyphus is back. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah right, he would have right, just yeah. been horrified. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's definitely, I do have that safety of my initial people who were my caretakers were, were okay with me or weren't afraid of me. Uh, at the very least, they're like, hmm, that's weird. Well, don't talk about it. And like, or talk about it with this, this lady in a, um, uh, on a couch, but that seems odd. Right off the bat, stand-up wise, is that what you were talking about when you first started doing it? Um, yeah, I mean, I, w- I would talk about depression and the way that I did, and and kind of like uh, I had a shaved head kind of at the beginning of my, and then played the violin, very odd, disjointed act. So uh, I wasn't something people would um, think. Oh, that's going to work out. Um, I, yeah, it's more performance art, one person show type situation. When, when did the shift, when did the shift go to like talking more about your mental health and your comedy and all that? Um, uh, I think when I started having more problems, like at the end of college, I was doing stand up in Minneapolis and I had to go through an outpatient treatment program for an eating disorder. Uh, and so I, yeah, there they put me on Prozac. That was the the thing at the time. Um, I think a lot of psychiatrists were doing that. And uh, so I knew I was had depression. And depression, I don't know, I didn't feel as much shame about that. Uh, it was only when, I think, when I was 40 and the it was suggested to me to go on mood stabilizers that I had more uh, denial, where I was like, oh, that no, I don't want to be on mood stabilizers. I think that's changing so much now. There's just so much, I think, think due to the beautiful internet is that 
the points of view are are really blossoming and I've seen some great comedians who are describing mental health experiences that are you know have been very much uh like schizophrenia like I had, I had never heard anybody talk about schizophrenia on stage and in the past couple of years I think there's a number of comedians with schizophrenia which yeah. is just oh it's just so great it's like to be able to hear rather than that being a punchline for jokes, which so often has been in, you know, this whole group of people, it's now people uh, can say what their experience actually is. And uh, yeah, it's just wonderful. Yeah. Um, let, let me reintroduce you here. My, my guest is the comedian Maria Bamford. Her new memoir is called Sure, I'll Join Your Cult, a memoir of mental illness and the quest to belong anywhere. It's out today. Um, one, but part of the book is you talk about all these like quote unquote cults that you've been a part of, like Debtors Anonymous and Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous and Overeaters Anonymous. Yes, yes, all the twelve step groups. Some people might say that they are not, but they definitely are a certain society with uh, some pretty odd rules. Uh, now, of course, one of the main things of every, which I know twelve steppers will say take what you want, leave the rest. That's one of the aphorisms that's you know used is like, we're not a real cult. And also it is free um, that you don't have to pay any money to go. Uh, but there are certain elements like you're not supposed to state publicly which group you attend. And I understand uh, the philosophy behind that is that so one person such as myself won't be like a representative of the group. <laughs> I just think that's just not even a thing anymore. Like there are so many billions of people on earth. Um, yeah. I just, I can't believe it. And also we know who's in a 12 step group. Everybody knows. <laughs> like, like if somebody abruptly stops doing something that was terrible <laughs> all of a sudden and is doing something else on a Friday and Saturday night <laughs> with a group of friends, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think you're probably going to a twelve step group. You don't I don't know. That's the also, that's the new Jeff Foxworthy bit by yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I should try uh, if if I only had ambition. If you, if um, you ever drank <laughs> coffee out of a styrofoam cup. <laughs> well, and it's one of the only mental health things that we have that's available that is free. That it's peer-led counseling, which is not the greatest idea. And also it is Judeo-Christian language, uh, paternalistic sort of sounding. So not perfect, but I definitely do uh, only listen to the parts that I like and then go and get a cup of coffee or uh, uh, if I'm at an OA meeting, I I go eat a mini muffin that I have in my purse in the hallway (laughs) and then... (laughs) Come on back when uh, whatever is being done, pray the prayers are done. Um, yeah, I'm an atheist. I but I I do find it is a cognitive behavioral program um, that's been very helpful to me. It has not been ideal, but I've paid enormous amounts of money for things that have been uh, unquestionably awful. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, have, I, I love 12-step programs. I think they're uh, the bee's knees. More of my conversation with Maria Bamford after this. Think of your 
favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You just don't know how much suffering someone has been putting up with for how long and how bad it feels. So um, to take it personally um, or, yeah, just I think it's like any illness, like to really celebrate how, how, how strong people have been. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the comedian Maria Bamford, who just wrote a new memoir. And there's a chapter in there that she's talking about called Obligatory Suicide Disclaimer. Maria is a comedian. We're having a great conversation. It's a really funny conversation. Her comedy's really funny. Her book's really funny. And that chapter, which I think is at the end of the book, I've never really read anything like it before. It is so empathetic with folks who are suicidal, with folks who have lost people who have died by suicide. And it's the kind of perspective that you can only have if you've been in that situation yourself. And and Maria has, and she's very open about that. So just heads up, that's coming up. And also heads up if like hearing a conversation about suicide is not something that you can handle today or not something you want to hear today. I just give you a heads up that it's about to happen. But, you know, uh, the part I'm going to play right now is this part of the conversation that I'm still thinking about. So Maria uh, had the show on Netflix called Lady Dynamite. And she was the star of the show. Like she was the executive producer of the show. And even she had a hard time advocating for what she needed to handle her mental health and star in the show at the same time. That's where our conversation picks up. Shortly after the the mental health stay uh, in in the psych ward that you and I talked about at the beginning of this conversation, um, you started production on Lady Dynamite, which was your, your critically acclaimed Netflix show, which was starring you and kind of loosely based on your life. It's time for me to be less cautious. You think I'm ready to date? Good, because I've already set you up with someone I know. He's bisexual. He also has a crippling meth addiction. Sounds good. And you made a point of uh, protecting your mental health while shooting that show. Can you talk a little bit about that? I definitely tried my best. Uh, Show business, if you ever long to be a part of it, if you are uh, the star of a TV show, this is what happens. You uh, work about an 18-hour day where you have to be in full contact with everybody, making you know jokes, having fun time, memorizing your lines, et cetera. And then for people who are actually able to do the job, uh, they will have a six-hour turnaround. That means six hours between the time that you leave the set and get back again the next day for another 18-hour day. Uh, can't do it. Can't do it. Uh, so, and I told them up front that I couldn't do that. And, but as you know, uh, if you are ever hired, even if you tell somebody up front, oh, I have kids or I have a wheelchair and I'm going to need a ramp. People often forget that of what the, what, the, what that's going to look like in real life. So 
yeah, almost every day I had to have a talk with the producers and say, yeah, I'm, I'm going home. I'm going home right now. Yep. Oh, I know. I know we're falling behind. I know the I'm losing you money. I know uh, the Teamsters are working on three hours and are 75 years old driving trucks, but I've got to go home. Good night. And I found that very surprising, you know, that I was the star and executive producer of my own show and still needing to advocate for myself. That no one could advocate for me. No one can do it for you except you. And I was being paid extremely well. But I I just want to say how, how difficult that is uh, to keep asking for what you need for every every single day at work you know and and to get pushback every single day yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and and i think when you when people listen to that story maybe because like the narratives that we have been told or like maybe the, the better way to put this is that like i think when people read the book um if they're used to some sort and this is what i found refreshing about the book if they're used to some sort of like mental health memoir narrative it typically goes like this. It goes like, um, oh, you know, here I was living a, a free and easy life out uh, amongst the daffodils. I was uh, playing soccer with my cousin Kevin, and we had a lovely time. And then, you know, oh, when I was 18, I suffered from X. Um, and thanks to Y, I no longer suffered from X, and now things are good. And, oh. and that's not how it works. And, not, yeah. and you kind of yeah. say that at the beginning, uh, even in the first chapter, you're, you're, like this is not a clear, what do you say? It's not a clear co- chronology of like uh, trauma, healing and victory. Yeah, yeah. And I always have a hard time with those memoirs because I feel like whenever ra- someone writes a memoir like that, their next memoir is, oh, sh- <laughs> you know, I didn't tell you about how much cocaine I was snorting. I forgot. <laughs> Did I mention my alligator in the last book? <laughs> like, <laughs> I have a pet alligator. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Well, and also I found that to be a real myth of you know, people's and also a shaming thing of when people go, well, don't just get the right psychopharmacologist. I mean, there's this great guy. He's on, it's just five grand a month, but he will then text you at any time, day or night, and you can go see him on a helicopter pad in Malibu. And, you know, then you just, you can do what everyone else can do. Like, it's like these weird, like, oh, how, if I was just doing it properly, I wouldn't need 12 hours of sleep. I would be able to, uh, do what everybody else is doing. And, you know, at least I, I haven't figured out how to do, do that. Um, I still have people contacting me like, I'm like, I can't believe you're still on Depakote, Seroquel and, and Prozac. It's like, well, those are the things that make me feel stable. And um, yeah, it's not perfect to have a, a pretty intense tremor and I sleep a lot. Um, and I, but I don't know if you've known what it's felt like to to lose your mind, but it doesn't feel good. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I'm too scared uh, to change. There's there's kind of myth busting you're, you're doing there about sort of the narratives we have around mental health. And I, I want to, you know, the, the, the myth busting that I found the most um, sort of profound in the book is, is in this chapter near the end of the book, which is called uh, Obligatory Suicide Disclaimer. And you, you tell folks how they 
can get help and you know either from you know if you're if you're lucky enough to have someone in a uh, some someone who's in a, in a sort of a medical institution or psychological institution that that's useful to you but you also talk about like just do do what you can like do do everything you can but then after that you talk about how empathetic you are um in a way i haven't read before how empathetic you are to folks who die by suicide what did you want to get across in that chapter um I think when I've had uh, in in a place of wanting to kill myself, uh, you know, and had plans, I think the anger of others or the judgment um, hasn't hasn't been helpful or 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 people saying you can go, you know, go anytime. (laughs) But just that. You just don't know how much suffering someone has been putting up with for how long and how bad it feels. So um, to take it personally um, or, yeah, just I think it's like any illness, like to really celebrate how 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 strong people have been. Um that I had no idea, I had never had before my uh, uh, breakdown in 2011, you know, how bad it could be and for how long. And that was only a year. Um, yeah, I, I get it. You know, like I, I just get it. I'm not in any way suggesting uh, oh, people, but just to have uh, a lot of empathy for how, um, yeah, that it's just, it's just real, you know, like, I just, I just don't want to have people, the memory of someone, or um, that someone's life is somehow uh, uh, screwed up, because of they what they died of. Um, There's a new uh, hotline in the US 988, where you can text or call. And I just trained, I don't know if they have this in Canada, but to be a peer advocate, a peer specialist in they're doing this as a program federally and state, different states um, to you get certified and you can become someone who has lived experience with mental health or uh, addiction and become a part of emergency teams or work on suicide hotlines, that type of thing, like that we may be able to help each other um, with what we have, you know, whoever's next to you, you know, like, because that's, I think I have a hard time with, they go, oh, go just go to the mental health care center. It's like, do you realize that's going to be a four hour wait? Then someone's going to see you and go, you don't have the right paperwork. You can come back in two weeks. And then, you know, like ask the person how they're doing right now in the coffee shop. But like, just take, it's we can help each other on some level. Yeah, it's not going to be great. It's be preferable for everybody to see a professional. Um, but um, sometimes that's that's not there. So just, you know, I, and I joke in the in the book, you know, call anybody. But I did, you know, I have, I called a Hertz Rent-A-Car in my neighborhood. <laughs> they picked up on the first ring. Uh, she said, all I can do is lease you a car. But then before hanging up on me, she did say, I believe every human life has value. You take care. I mean, you just don't know, you know, some just 
keep talking. Mumble, as my friend Jackie Cation says, mumble in any direction. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love that. Um, I always love getting the chance to talk to you, Maria. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you. It's been a lovely, a lovely chat. I hope I made some sense. Me too. I hope I made some sense too. Uh, Maria Bamford's new memoir, Sure, I'll Join Your Cult, A Memoir of Mental Illness and the Quest to Belong Anywhere is out now. Uh, in Canada... Um, the If you're suffering from mental health issues or suicidal thoughts, there's the Crisis Services Canada website, and there's a toll-free number, 1-833-456-4566, or you can text uh, 45645. That is it for this episode of uh, Q. The other, um, the other one we put up today is really interesting. So it's a, it's a, it's a, I've talked to this guy before, uh, Raymond Antrobus. He's a poet. Um, he's deaf. And that's like part of what we talk about in our conversation. Also, as I mentioned, I mentioned this in the podcast itself, but shout out Zoom for having captions on a Zoom call so we could like talk to one another so easily. Anyway, um, he ta- tells this beautiful story about his dad, who he certainly has a complicated relationship with. Um, his dad's passed on now. And how his dad read poems to him when he was a kid in the hopes that they would get through somehow. And look at Raymond now, one of the most acclaimed poets in the world. So he'll be here to talk to you about that. And um, you can listen to him read a poem, read one of his poems on the podcast that's up today. So go check that out. If you're not already subscribed to this podcast, please do so. And uh, if you have any friends who like the old arts, let them know about it. See you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.